I don't have any Hershey Kisses for you this morning. But what I do have is another incredibly difficult passage from the book of Numbers for us to look at. Um, which has been a treat. I, I hope you guys have really seen through this series, you've really gotten a, sense, a chance to wrestle together with these passages that we're usually kind of abandoned to wrestle with on our own. And you've got a sense of how these passages are still God's word for his people today. We've been going through this series on difficult passages in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers. And this morning uh, is the last message of this series. Um, next week is going to be Palm Sunday, so we'll be moving on to new things. I would suggest that this topic um, might be the most disturbing of all the passages. I, I think that um, probably the most existentially difficult passage for me to preach on was the passage where the woman drinks the water with the dirt mix in it. Um, but I think this passage actually hits closer to home for us. Numbers 31 records the first God-ordained war recorded in the Bible. And it's not an exaggeration to say that passages like this one and the conquest of Canaan in Joshua are a big reason why many atheists are repelled by the Bible. In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So um, this quote is so full of blasphemy and so full of lies that it's hard to know even where to begin. But the fact of the matter is that these kind of sentiments exist. And they exist largely because of misunderstandings of the kinds of passages we're looking at, we've been looking at these last few weeks, especially the passage we're looking at today, which, which deals with the first war God ever commanded. Many refer to this topic as holy war. And while I'll quote from some um, scholars who use this phrase, we'll spend a little time later reflecting on why this phrase might not really be appropriate. War, death, and judgment are a result of the fall, and were never a part of God's original intentions for humanity. Just as the prophet Isaiah anticipated a time when the nations would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, so even the book of Numbers gives us hints throughout that God has not made peace with the idea of war. For the most part, I'll use the phrase, God ordained war. That is, war that God has officially commanded as an act of judgment. But whatever we choose to call it, this is a huge topic and it deserves careful treatment. So what I realize, I've, I've been traveling all week this week. And, uh, and so i got children's sermon and sermon and catechism and music and whatever. And uh, I didn't have as much time. So what that meant is that I have like 12 pages of notes instead of 8 pages of notes. If you've ever heard like the preacher say, like, if you want me to preach for an hour... Uh, I'm ready to go now, but if you want me to preach for 25 minutes, you know, I'm going to need eight hours. Um, that's kind of w what went on uh, this week. So what we're going to do is there, there's really two parts of this. The first part um, is longer, and it deals more generally with the topic of God-ordained war in the Old Testament. And this is a little bit more of a lecture than a sermon, um, a little bit closer to what Sarah did as she, as she launched us into our series. The second part is a brief look at Numbers 31 as a sort of case study on God-ordained war in the Old Testament. And 
my plan is I, I, I really don't want to just kind of leave the Numbers 31 stuff and only look at the kind of more synthetic treatment where we're looking at the topic in general. But I actually think that first part is actually a little more valuable for us than the second part. So what we're going to do is um, during the Q&A time that we have after the service, five minutes following the service, we'll have 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A. And... Um, I'd be happy to share some passages that I prepared, uh, some some um, some teaching that I prepared from Numbers 31, or just answer any questions about what I'm going to be doing here. Um, I don't want you to think that I'm shirking it, but as I just kind of looked at this passage and just thought about what do God's people need, I think we need to kind of look at this topic in general just a little bit more this morning. Does that sound all right? Could I ask for one of you to pray for me before we dive into this topic? Thanks, John. And I want to begin by recommending a book. And I'm not just doing this because there's a long-time InterVarsity Press editor in the room. But I, I wanted to uh, begin uh, by, by recommending this book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. Um, if, if you're really seriously troubled by the Old Testament, this is just a really good place to start. It's written by a guy named Christopher Wright. And um, he's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. And if, if any of you know me, you know that I quote from N.T. Wright all the time. So this is O.T. right? Um, so in the book, uh, Old Testament Ethics for the Pe- uh, People of God, Christopher Wright gives several points to consider regarding Israel's conquest of the Canaanites. And in it, he spends a significant amount of time addressing our common misunderstandings about Israel's conquest of Canaan, which occurs mostly in Joshua, though it's continued a bit in the book of Judges. Um, here I want to summarize this morning his, his five best points on the topic of God-ordained war. And I want to supplement it with some insights from Scripture. So the first point is that the conquest of Canaan is limited to a specific moment in Israel's history and was not to be repeated later on. That's an important thing to understand. It's limited to a specific moment, a specific season in Israel's history, and is not to be repeated later on. Chris Wright points out that no later texts in the prophets or elsewhere ever urge Israel to take up her holy war again. And the problem is, when we read the Bible, that we think we're reading philosophy or something like that. And the problem is we want God to deliver us these abstract, timeless, ethical principles, but such a non-historical way of thinking is foreign to the Bible. We're not living in theocratic Israel, and it's not uh, 1400 B.C., And it's a mistake to think that the commands they received were delivered to humanity at large for all times. Now, of course, there is a sense in which all of God's commands and all of God's, um, and, and everything that God does is a reflection of his holy nature, of his character. And we can learn from that. But that's different than saying this command that is given for this time is applicable in all times and places. That would be a misinterpretation. It's also important for us to remember that the universal call of children of God in the New Covenant, uh, the New Testament, um, is to love our enemies. Whether issued by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 or by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, it's interesting because their teaching is actually grounded in an application of the Old Testament for their day. 
that's something that we need to understand. Even in ancient Israel, the ethical norm was to love your enemies and treat foreigners with compassion. To just give two brief examples of dozens more that could be quoted. Exodus 24.4 says, If you come across your enemy's axe or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Exodus 22.21 says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. God grounds the compassion he wants them to show to foreigners to the fact that in their own story, they needed compassion. Just as Jesus grounds our call to radically forgive others in the fact that we've been radically forgiven beyond anything that we can extend. So this differentiates Christianity and Judaism from other religions and ideologies where the door is essentially left open for violence and continued warfare. So a lot of times, you know, for, for example, um, something that, that really troubles us, and you'll hear a, a lot of atheists, or, or maybe we've wrestled with it ourselves, is we'll say, oh, well, well, Christians have done terrible things like the Crusades. But the question is not whether Christians have waged unjust wars. The question is whether they were good Christians. Right? That's not to say there's no such thing as a just war from a Christian perspective. But I'm sympathetic to Jim Wallace from Sojourners who says that followers of the Prince of Peace should be some of the hardest people to, consider, uh, to convince that it's time for war. Right. So number one, we must remember that the God-ordained conquest of Canaan was a specific moment in history which was not to be repeated. God has not left this door for conquest and holy wars unending open to us in the Scriptures. Number two... There's no contradiction between blessing Israel with the land and judging the Canaanites with the loss of the land. Of course, God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years earlier. But we don't often consider why God waited hundreds of years to make good on that promise. If God was going to bless the Hebrews, why not just go ahead along with it? Come on, get it, get it going. And the reason given in Genesis is simple and easy to miss. God didn't give them the land right away because he wasn't ready yet to judge the other nations who were living there. In Genesis 15, 6, God says to Abraham, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back to this promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God is perfectly just, and he knows, and, and, and we know that he would not just destroy a nation that's not deserving of his judgment, but God is also omniscient. That is to say, he knows all things, even things that will occur in the future. And he knows that a day will come when the Amorites' wickedness will reach its full measure and it will be appropriate for him to come and supplant them out of that land and stick Israel there, not just to bless Israel, but as an act of judgment on the Amorites. But for now, there's a pause that's put on that. Their, Their wickedness needs to reach its full measure. Turn with me, if you would, if you have a Bible, to Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6. This is an important passage for this topic. If you don't have it, I'll I'll read a, a bit of it out loud. These are the words that Moses spoke to Israel just before they entered the promised land to dispossess the other nations. Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. And in case you missed it the first time, no, it's not on account... No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. 
It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in case you missed it the second time, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. I'm conscious of the fact that my neck is actually feeling kind of stiff this morning. What is this a good example of? It's a good example of grace and election. That we are saved, as, as the prophet Daniel prays to the Lord, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of God's great mercy. Israel didn't do anything. When God called Abraham, he hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He hadn't done anything. But God in his mercy called Abraham, and Abraham responded by faith. And it's the same with our salvation. We're called not on the basis of our own righteousness. We receive this great inheritance not on the basis of our own goodness. It's not something that we've earned. It's something that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. So just to summarize, there's no contradiction between blessing Israel with the land and judging the Canaanites with the loss of the land. Number three, just to be clear, the conquest is described as an act of God's punishment toward these sinful nations. God did not arbitrarily select a group, uh, a group of people to destroy. Instead, he judged a group of people, the Canaanites, whose wickedness was inextricably bound to their idolatrous culture and whose sin had reached its full measure. Among the practices implicit in Canaanite culture were things like worshiping idols and evil gods, sexual promiscuity, uh, uh, um, you know, um, stealing women away for cult prostitution, child sacrifice, which the Lord abhors then and now, abusive forms of slavery. All these things were just woven into the fabric of that culture. See, culture can be a, a good thing. Culture can be a good thing. There's a lot of things about different cultures in the world that, that mirror, that show us that people are created in the image of God. They show us something true about God. But then there's ways in which our fallenness can be woven into cultures. And sometimes sin is so inextricably bound up with culture that it can't be dealt with unless God just eliminates that culture. Therefore, we're told time and time again that the land will vomit them out. Will vomit them out. There's... There's nothing, besides having a baby, there's nothing more violent that happens to the human body than just when you vomit, you know, when, when that, it's just kind of uncontrollable, thing, you know, it's just, it has to come out, right? That's, that's the way that God describes what happens to these people. Chris Wright comments that this speaks of something that is not merely an abomination to God, but is also repulsive and disgusting, so much so that he can no longer stomach it. Stomach it. This idolatry, this child sacrifice, this stealing women away for cult prostitution, this abusive slavery, God wants to vomit that out. We live in such an individualistic society that we find it hard to conceive of God judging a people group corporately. But it's far more common, both historically and globally, for people's individual identities to be bound up together with their corporate identity of family and clan and nation. So for the Canaanites, their degradation as a people had reached such heights of systematic wickedness that it could not be reversed, and therefore God decided to remove them from history. Consider the severity of God, but also His kindness. Think of the flood in Genesis 6, when all of humanity had reached that point. 
and God decided he would start over again. In his book, God on the Dock, C.S. Lewis writes, If war is ever lawful, then peace is sometimes sinful. <coughs> Think about that for a minute. If war is ever lawful, if God is ever calling us to respond to a great systematic wickedness, then peace is sometimes sinful. This is the idea at work here in Numbers. God cannot abide the peaceful existence of a nation systematically murdering their own children and assigning their women to serve as whores to gods who are in reality man-made monsters. <coughs> in the conquest narrative, we see a righteous God who declares war on that kind of peace. That's tough for us. That's not the way that we usually like to think of God. But God is just. So number three, just to be clear, the conquest is described as an act of God's punishment towards these sinful nations. So does this mean that God has an unjust bias towards Israel? That he'll judge all other nations except them? I think that sometimes that's the way that we look at it. We look at it um, even, even in the world today. Um, as we think about Israel and Palestine and all these sort of relationships, we just think God just loves his people. They can do whatever they want. God's never going to hold them accountable and God just hates these people. They can do whatever they want. God's always going to hate them. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. In fact, Israel faces the judgment of God more than any other nation in scripture because God's character never changes. God promised, number four, to punish the Israelites in the same way if they committed these sins. In fact, this is exactly what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Wright says that God warned Israel that if they behaved the same way as the Canaanites, God would treat Israel as his enemy on the same terms as the Canaanites and inflict the same punishment on them by using other nations. The land that had vomited out the Canaanites would be perfectly capable of repeating its heaving if Israel indulged in the same repulsive Canaanite practices. And of course, that's exactly what happened throughout the long history of Israel's dealings with Yahweh in the Old Testament. In many ways, the later prophets reversed this imagery of holy war in describing Yahweh's commitment to judge Israel for their sin and injustice. So think of it, as I, as I was doing the children's homily, you know, think of it, um, you know, first, at first I gave it to Dante. Dante's not a Canaanite, he's a good boy. <laughs> then, then I took it away from him. He wasn't using the gift how he was supposed to use it. And I gave it to Miriam. And uh, Miriam was representing Israel, right? And, uh, but she wasn't using that gift how she was supposed to either. So I took it away and gave it to my firstborn daughter, right? And this is, this is part of what's going on in the gospel. Jesus, the true Israel fulfills what his chosen people, what they collectively did not do, and in fact could not do, because of their fallen nature. And he fulfills it not just on behalf of Israel, but on behalf of the Canaanites. Number five, it's important to remember when we're talking about Almighty God, this is probably the hardest thing, and if this coin could drop, so many issues with the Bible for us would be solved. And that's just this, that fairness is a slippery concept, especially when sinful human beings assert themselves as judges over their completely holy creator. I think today we, 
one of our main problems is um, we, we don't like this idea that God has a prerogative to judge his creation if he wants to. That he's holy, he's good, he's always going to act in his character. But one of the things that God is, is God is judge. And we want to be judge. All of our movies at the end, it's like, well, I couldn't find what I wanted, so I guess I'm going to go find my own truth. Or whatever. You know, we, we kind of put ourselves in this divine place that only God is, is, is supposed to inhabit. And we put ourselves at the center of the cosmos. C.S. Lewis summarizes this point profoundly. He says, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the kind of God who permits war and poverty and disease. He's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. Do you guys sense C.S. Lewis's sarcasm there? In other words, our insistence that Almighty God must answer to us for his behavior is laughable. Consider the Lord's discourse in Job 38 through 41. Where were you when I made this, this whole place? Where was your wisdom? Was it your wisdom that formed all this stuff? The Father has given the role of judge to Jesus Christ alone, and it would be a disaster, both morally and rationally, for him to abdicate that role to another. We must learn to trust his judgment and his character more than our own. And that should be our stock response. But this doesn't mean that God leaves us in the dark. For he wants us to know his character, and he's revealed it to us in his word. Above all, in his word made flesh. For example, when God judged Judah in 586 B.C. and sent them into exile, when the land vomited out God's chosen people, the Lord says this to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why do you die, people of Israel? God is pleading with his people. I'm just, and you're about to run into an immovable object. And I don't want you to. But I will not change. You must change. God wants us to know that his heart, he wants us to know his heart on this matter, so that whatever other reasons we might have, whatever reasons he might have for judging Judah, or even the Canaanites, it's never the case that he takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. He would always rather have them turn and repent from their wickedness so that they might live. Remember, Jonah didn't even want to tell the Ninevites to repent because he didn't like them. He's like, I know if I tell them, they're going to repent and you're going to have mercy on them and I don't want you to do that. And God says, I want to do that though. Right? God's ways are not like our ways. It's a good thing that he's the judge and we're not the judge. I think for me, um, the place where I lay my head on this topic of judgment, and especially eternal judgment, which is a really difficult doctrine for me. Can I just throw that out there? God's eternal judgment of people is a very difficult doctrine. It's got to start with trust in who God is in his very nature. That we say, okay, well, the kind of God who's going to judge the world is the kind of God that though he was rich, 
yet for our sake became poor so that through him we might become rich. That the kind of God who's going to judge the world, you know, um, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, even, made himself, even became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That that's the nature of God, and that's the God who will judge the world. And that's the place where I lay my head on, the, on my pillow at night. And I don't kind of, you know, um, when I get to this point when I'm like, well, what about these people that haven't heard you yet? And what about these nations in distant lands? And what about this person? They seem like they were kind of like misunderstood from a young age, and, and that, that kind of contributed to the fact that they were acting evilly. And I mean, what, what's going to go on here? What's going to happen, God? As if I'm stressed out that God is somehow not going to be loving, and not going to be just, and not going to be the God that we find in the face of Jesus Christ on that last day. When that is not in fact the case, that is indeed exactly the God that we're going to find. And that's where we can lay our head on the pillow and say, okay, in the end, God is God, and I am not. In the end, God is going to say who's in and who's out and why, and the, the people who are in are going to have nothing to boast about, and the people who are out will have no one to blame but themselves. That's the God we find in the face of Jesus Christ. But it's important to note that trusting God's character doesn't mean that we're not allowed to ask questions when we're disturbed about God's decisions. As long as we remember that we're creatures, as Job remembered, and that God is the creator. He needed to be reminded a little bit. In closing this section, please turn with me in your bulletin to Genesis 18, 22-33. The story of Abraham's intercession for Sodom. This passage is helpful for several reasons. Number one, it tells the story of a biblical hero who questions, albeit with reverence, the morality of God's decision to destroy an immoral city. Number two, it answers for us about God's justice. It gives us answers, especially concerning individuals. And third, since the, the first five books of the Bible um, form a continuous unit, the Torah forms a continuous unit, Moses and any final redactors of the Pentateuch would have meant for this story to serve as an ethical framework for understanding things that happen afterward. So we should be understanding numbers with this in the background of our mental framework. In Genesis 18, God is about to destroy Sodom for their exceeding wickedness. And when our morally inquisitive patriarch draws near to God, he asks him, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's a question that we would have, isn't it? And he's not content with a purely theoretical answer, so he creates a practical scenario to ask God about. So suppose, God, that there are 50 righteous people within the city, says Abraham. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous persons who are in it? And then, almost as if he's half confident and half uncertain about God's character, he reminds the Lord, because far be it from you to do such a thing, right, God? To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, and I am but dust and ashes. He remembers that he's the creature and that God is the creator. He's the clay and God is the potter. So here's the, his combination of reverence and boldness are reminiscent of, of Job's dialogue with Yahweh. So he continues, suppose five of the 50 righteous persons are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. 
And these negotiations and clarifications continue. And then skipping forward a bit, Abraham asks the Lord one final question. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, for I will speak again but this one. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. So in, in summary, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he's also committed to sparing righteous persons from his judgment. Genesis 18 functions as this normative lens for understanding the conquest of Canaan. And indeed, God's judgment of the Midianites in Numbers 31. And that's a passage, as I said, we'll kind of do a little time out. If you want to hear a little teaching on that, you can come back for the Q&A part. just want to say this in light of what Abraham has done here. Um, there's a lot of people in our world and a lot of people sitting here and a lot of times that even if you're feeling pretty solid on this right now, you might come to the point where you question the goodness of God because of the evil prevalent in the world. If you haven't come to that point and you have a few decades left in you, you'll probably come to that point. I just want to point out a few things from Scripture. First is that it says in Jude in the New Testament, Jude chapter 1 verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Um, there's some Christian communities where there's incredible shame attached to doubt. And uh, doubt, it's actually not an altogether bad thing. It's, it's sort of like an immune system for, for true doctrine. So like, you know, if you've never doubted, then, you know, when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, you're going to become a Jehovah's Witness. And then when you meet a Muslim person in your workplace, you're going to become a Muslim. You, you need to have this kind of reflex that says, well, I, I don't want to believe something if it's not true. I, I want to be able to wrestle with these things. So we need to be merciful with those who doubt. Jesus was merciful with Thomas when Thomas doubted. He said, I will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I stick my fingers in his side and stick my fingers in the holes of his hands. And it's interesting that Jesus does exhort him, but Jesus lets him have at it, doesn't he? Because Jesus is merciful to those who, who doubt. However... This is an important word in this culture, in this time, in this place, a prophetic word. That there's a limit. That there's a limit to the, kinds of the, to, the, to the kind of disposition that we should bring before our Creator. The Lord says to Job in Job 40 verse 8, Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you are right? Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you are right? Beware of this impulse in our world today. There's so many things we say, well, I couldn't help this, and this, this could have been this way, and this could have been that way, and guys, we got to be careful. This is the seed of rebellion and blasphemy. When we start to kind of just say, well, no, I mean, God, he should, have been, he should have done something different than this, and we kind of start to just, all of a sudden, we're just kind of putting ourselves in the place of our creator, and we start to judge him, and then pretty soon, that gets away from us, and... Um, and we're not sitting in the place of Thomas anymore. We're not sitting in the place of Job anymore. We're standing outside and we're sitting in the place of the Canaanites. In summary, uh, in closing I should say, with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's important and it's clear that the age of grace and jubilee have been inaugurated. We see that in Luke 4, 16-21. Peoples and nations everywhere are called to acknowledge Jesus' universal lordship and receive God's promised salvation from the wrath to come. The wrath that comes from his zeal over what's right. His zeal over what's just. 
but the salvation that comes over his zeal for what's loving and his zeal for what's merciful. In a great turn of events, even the Moabites, who are closely associated with the Midianites in Scripture, even the Moabites are given a place in the genealogy of Jesus through his great-grandmother Ruth. These people who are judged, these people who are God's enemies, it's like, oh, what's this Moabitess doing in Jesus' genealogy? What's he doing? What's what's she doing in the family tree of our Savior? So the Canaanite conquest anticipates our final judgment that one day God will judge the entire world. And regardless of how we feel about these narratives as modern people, Christianity affirms that not only the Midianites, but all people have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All people. In reality, We're not only all sons of Adam, we all share in the sins of the Midianites in this way. All of us together have engaged in spiritual adultery and are deserving the death penalty. That's what the gospel says in scripture. Yet not for the sake of 50, not even 10, but one righteous man. By this one righteous man, God has rescued us. He's cleansed our hands. He's atoned for us. And our only hope is in that ransom that God has provided. John Stott says, Jesus died bearing in his own innocent person the condemnation that we deserved. So the wages of sin is death, and Christ received those wages in our place. On the cross, our Creator the one through whom all things were made, our Creator absorbed the full weight of our judgment in His own innocent person. And with this knowledge in mind, we can never look at these conquest narratives in the same way. Indeed, they serve to inflict the world with fear of God's righteous judgment. But even the book of Numbers insists that God's love exponentially trumps, excuse me, His justice. And in Jesus Christ, we see how that is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your commitment to be fully you and that you never change. And that if you did change, this world and all that's in it would unravel. So we thank you, Lord, for your justice. We worship you as the judge over all creation and the judge over our own souls this morning. We thank you, Lord, that continuing to be perfectly just, continuing to be perfectly good and completely separated from all wickedness, you found a way to rescue us from our plight through the one righteous man, our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if any do not know him this morning, they would put their trust in him. Lord, that we would be warned from Scripture that we will all stand before a holy, righteous judge and have to answer. And Lord, would the answer that comes from our lips and would the answer that comes from our bowed hearts be that we trust in Jesus Christ as our only Savior and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.